It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tucker Carlson has acquired 44,000 hours of footage from the January 6th insurrection. Sorry, not insurrection, the riot. Ah, I don't want to go that far. All right, what's not quite coup, but a half step down from uprising? They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Sightseeing, clearly the term I was going for. Sightseeing, mere flaneurs in the style of Baudelaire. Just taking time to stop and smell the tear gas. You know, I'm not even going to do this. I will not give Tucker the satisfaction, some satisfaction. The guy acquired 44,000 hours of video. That seems daunting until you realize it's what the average American teen watches in a week as they have TikTok running in the background during their Twitch sessions. Plus, you know who else had all of this video? The defense attorney of every individual charged with illegally entering the Capitol, including that fellow that Carlson portrays as an unfair victim of liberal media scapegoating. And at the center of it, the single most famous person arrested that day was a Navy veteran from Arizona called Jacob Chansley often referred to as the QAnon shaman. The so-called QAnon shaman. QAnon shaman. Someone named Q shaman. The voices you heard were Don Lemon, Wolf Blitzer, and Stephen Colbert, symbolic of liberal media, a media keen to portray the man in a horned fur helmet and carrying a spear as some kind of weirdo. You know who else thinks that the shaman, sorry, Jacob Chansley, was a symbol? It was Jacob Chansley, as he told Channel 5 with Andrew Callaghan. You know, I stood out the most, to say the least, and I think I energized a lot of people, not just in the United States, but all over the world, to stand up for their freedoms as well. How do you feel about the nickname, QAnon Shaman? Well, it's not its not anything I ever asked for. It's one that was given to me by Alex Jones. <laughs> Alex Jones gave you that nickname? He's the one that called me the QAnon Shaman for the very first time. Chansley went on to add that, yes, he is a shaman, and also, he does believe in QAnon. I came to conclude that Q was involved at the highest levels of the military and the intelligence community. And uh, that Q was involved with like things like the deep underground military bases and uh, black budget uh, technologies and stuff like that above top secret information. And um, ultimately Q involved the warring factions of the deep state. So Tucker could have interviewed the so-called QAnon shaman, so-called by Alex Jones, because he believes in QAnon and is a self-identified shaman, could have. Instead, he shows tape of the moments when that individual is not breaking and entering. I mean, someone he's not breaking, someone he's not entering, a few shots when he's not urging the crowd on with his bullhorn. Tucker doesn't show any moments when Chansley isn't holding a spear because Chansley is holding a spear the entire time. Carlson's not even doing a particularly good job of propaganda, not really rewriting the record. Perhaps he has conditioned his audience so well through the arts of suggestion and confirmation bias and selective reasoning that he doesn't have to really try. Take this clip meant to show that it wasn't all breaking glass and jumping through windows to get in the Capitol. A few at the front of the herd broke windows. Someone opened the doors and many hundreds of others just walked in. But the visual, the very visual at the moment when we hear that piece of narration was, yes, in the center of the screen, people walking through doors. But right there, occupying about a third of the screen, insurrection is climbing up and jumping through windows over broken glass. 
Do you know how David Copperfield used to make the elephant disappear? Every magician knows the trick. He'd have his people lead an elephant on stage. Then he'd distract the audience with a flash of mirror, a puff of smoke, a gesture. And the elephant's handlers would lead the elephant off the stage. And upon gesturing back, there'd be no elephant. It's amazing what misdirection can do. Yeah, misdirection can't get the QAnon shaman. Sorry. Navy veteran Jacob Chansley out of prison before much of his, from 80% of his 41-month sentence is served, but it can do a lot. Fox's use of this footage has caused national concern. Democratic lawmakers upset that Kevin McCarthy chose Carlson as the best intermediary of raw footage and a curious public. That too is a bit of a distraction. You can't reform Fox hosts. You can't make Fox broadcasters see the light, and you can't make their viewers see the light either. This is the darkness they choose. Like the shaman's 41-month sentence, it might just take a court ruling, meeting out not jail terms, but libel damages to Dominion voting systems to break through the mirror's flash and misdirection. On the show today, I shall spiel about a tweet and a stance that Governor Gavin Newsom of California has taken. To what effect? I told you, it was a tweet. It was a very brave tweet. But first, Dan Lyons is an admitted overtalker. His long-windedness, prolixity, if you will, has cost him jobs, relationships, put his marriage on the rocks. So he went in search of a cure, and the result is his new book, which is out today, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut, in an endlessly noisy world, Dan Lyons up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
There are a couple theories about why people talk a lot. One theory is that people have a lot to say, and without talking, how are you going to know what people have to say? Maybe talking is just introducing a blessing into the world. Maybe talking is just a way for us to communicate and rise above our humble uh, origins in pre-Cambrian societies. But then again, on the other hand, maybe talking (laughs) is the death of uh, discourse. Maybe talking and over-talking just gets in the way of clear communication. Maybe it's just a tick. Maybe it's just a flaw. Maybe it's something that needs to be mitigated against. As you can see, I'm a huge fan of not over-talking, and this is what drew me to the book, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut, S-T-F-U. You know what that stands for? It stands for, well, I guess we can't say it on a book, but we're going to say it on this interview with Dan Lyons, who is the author of S-T-F-U, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Dan, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. I don't even know what the real title of this book is, though, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, because they put the STFU so small in that little hole in the cover uh, that you might think the the title is just the power of keeping your mouth shut in an endlessly noisy world. Yes. And that the STFU is almost like a little piece of art, right? Um, Yeah. I think visually, I think as a piece of visual medium, it does actually draw you into that little STFU thing. But just in terms of communicating, what is this book actually called? We're a little confused. Now, people hearing it will, hearing this interview, will just know what the name of the book is because I'll have said it in my introduction to the introduction. But it is a little weird. And also uh, another aspect of the book's title is it seems like the subtitle is something like In an Endlessly Noisy World. So I do think in a way this gets at what you're talking talking to, which is communicating and over-communicating. And over-talking is a way of confusingly communicating, which is much of the thrust of the book, that when you talk too much, you're not giving your interlocutor or talking partner a lot of information. You're giving them less than they need or want. Right. Or conversely, talk less and say more, yes. which is actually not not really a new idea. It's a, people have said that in the past and talk less and get more, you know, that if you really want to get what you want and if, if you're in a negotiation, for example, talking less is the way to win mm-hmm. the negotiation, not pop, 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 pop. So that it's not about not talking. Some people have said, well, you know, here you are talking about not talking. Well, it's not about not talking. It's about how do you communicate effectively and clearly and what happened, I, I started looking around. I began really with myself because I talked too much. And In fact, you are a 50 on a scale of 1 to 50 of the talkaholic scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I discovered this scale. And so it really began, the book began as me trying to fix myself. Right. So if this were, if this were spiciness of peppers, you would be, you know, rush you to the emergency room level of spicy when it comes <laughs> yeah, to talk. Scoville. Yeah, Scoville. Yeah. But, <laughs> and it had caused me problems, which is another thing that you find with talkaholics is that um, it's not funny, you know, like it is a little bit. Um, and they can be charming at first and, oh my God, they're so fun. But then after a while, talkaholics talk themselves into problems. Mm -hmm. After a while, they're seen as less intelligent. They're seen as more annoying. Yeah. Yeah. People hate you at work. Yeah. So in a career-wise person, in in personal relationships, as a parent, there's all sorts of ways in which, yeah, talkaholics really hurt themselves. That's the definition of of talkaholics is that even when you know something you're about to say is going to hurt you, you still say it. So you, so you were a 50 on the 50-point scale, and as you detail in the book, this did have an impact. You lost out on $8 million. I mean, it's maybe a hypothetical $8 million. 
But if you yeah. uh, if you hadn't popped off about a CEO of a company that you were working for, maybe the stock would have vested, <laughs> and maybe you would have gotten eight million, and you found yourself um, kicked out of your house for a while, living in a rented room. Yeah, I, re- I rent a house near my wife and kids. I have kids who are now seniors in high school at the time; they were freshmen. Yeah, I have twins, a boy and a girl, and yeah. So I hit this kind of you know the sort of thing where you hit bottom and. Yeah. Uh, um, my life has kind of turned to crap, you know, and um, all I really wanted was to get back with my wife and kids. And then, you know, COVID hit and I'm all alone and some work fell through and I'm sitting there. And one day I looked up that stock from the company where I worked and you're right. I probably would have sold it all no matter what. But if I had managed to last four years, fully vest, hang on, never sell a share and what's it worth today? Yeah, it was like $8 million. And I, so that really, <laughs> there was a time when, man, I could really use like a uh, hundred grand. Yeah. Eight yeah. million would be, you know, like I'm done. You know? But um, so it just kind of all hit me. And I thought, man, you know, like I've talked my way into all of this trouble, like all of it. But didn't you also, so it must be, it's, it's ironic and it must be um, a hard problem to get yourself out of. First of all, can't really use talk therapy. That's that's uh, antithetical too. <laughs> Although talkaholics <laughs> love talk therapy, they're really good at it. Yeah, but you also, as much as you talked yourself out of all these situations, to some extent, you talked yourself into them, right? You got jobs, you get hired uh, on the writing staff of Silicon Valley. Some of it is your written work, but a lot of it is your just in general your your uh, verbiosity, your way with words, your ability to put the right words together at the right time. So you can't, it's a little like overeating, right? As opposed to say, being addicted to narcotics. There's no such thing as cold turkey. Yeah. The double-edged sword of being a talkaholic or a, a talker is that, yeah, it can help you in a lot of ways. So in my case, I, you know, I started, I, I was a journalist. First of all, to be a journalist, you have to be able to just kind of dare to say, maybe sometimes say what other people don't want to say, sort of speak the truth. I'm not. And then from there, I started doing this blog and that took off. And that was kind of a crazy mania. It was written, but it was, you know, really, I was doing 10 blog posts a day. It was just boom. And that turned into a book and that turned into a TV show. And then I started getting speaking gigs. Yeah. And it turns out I was pretty good at it. You know, I could give, I give a speech. I'm actually, I have a lot of social anxiety. Like I don't want to walk into a party where I don't know anyone, Mm -hmm. but I can get up and give a speech. Mm-hmm. Usually, sometimes I freak out, but yeah. so that, so that, yeah, so all this good stuff is like the more I over talked, the more I got, you know, and then suddenly, wham, you hit a wall. The The difference between like, so then I thought, well, okay, it's like alcoholism. It's an addiction. The similarity is, okay, if you can, I know people who controlled, developed the discipline not to drink. Mm-hmm. So I can surely develop the discipline to talk less. The problem is you can't just give up talking the way, you right. know, with, with, a, with a substance, you just give up the right. substance, right? Unless you join some monasteries. Yeah, right? <laughs> or, or yeah. So, um, so you need to talk, but you need to somehow moderate it. So it, it was a, it's a tricky challenge and there really is nowhere to learn how to do it. That's the weird thing. There's eight, I forget, I looked up, it's in the book, how many books there are on Amazon about how to how to right. speak public right. speaking how to be a great speaker and like none on how to shut up how right public speaking is always ranked as the number one anxiety or phobia but really 
not talking is a lot of people's phobia. <laughs> yeah. Or at least yeah. compulsion. Right. And, 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 and there's a spectrum. You know, there are people who are what they call it communicatively apprehensive, which means painfully shy. So they really have trouble talking at all. And those people though can be helped. The, the communication researchers that I found who identified talkaholism really began their work studying the other end of the spectrum mm -hmm. and trying to figure out why are people that way? And then how can we create programs to help them? And they can be helped. And so I said to the woman who came up with the talkaholic cell, okay, so then why did you start studying the other end? She said, well, my husband was an incredible talkaholic. I was an incredibly shy person. So we studied all of my end of the spectrum. Then we said, well, let's go look at the other end. And I said, okay. And like, what did you find out? What causes it? And how do you fix it? What's the therapy? She was like, oh no, we, no, we, we couldn't figure it out. We never knew what caused it, but we definitely knew you can't fix it. And I was like, what? That's well, not good news for me. Right. Well, it's the lock and key paradigm. I mean, the key there is the shyness. And so they found yeah. that you could put it inside the lock so it fit. So there must be something, some way to diagnose the lock, but they, they didn't have it. Now, what I think is most interesting here and occurs early in the book as it should, is that not all talkaholism is the same. There are different motivations or compulsions, and each has its own, let's say, diagnoses and also possible cures. So mm -hmm. there are the ego talkers who are the know-it-all guys. There are the nervous talkers. There are the blabbers and the blurters and the ruminators who might be, their process of thinking is just an out loud process, which could be good, but also annoying to the people around them. Is your book mostly about one kind and not the other? No, it's it's all of those. And, um, and in some sense, those overlap. Like you could say that blurters and blabbers are basically nervous talkers. It's often mm -hmm. driven by anxiety. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, actually, talkaholism is too. A lot of it boils down to anxiety. Ego talkers, no. I think ego talkers really just, you know, genuinely think they're smarter than everybody else and yeah. you should all listen to me. But no, so so the interesting thing is though, they, they have found connections between certain kinds of uh, over-talking or speech. Like I think they, it's like um, people who are hyper-verbal, who have pressured speech. It's often a symptom of things like ADHD or hypomania, like mm -hmm. a, a mild bipolar 2. And so in a way, the interesting thing is if you start realizing you're an overtalker, in a way it's a gift because you know, oh man, this may be something deeper. I should go talk to someone. And often people, especially with ADHD, uh, if you get on meds and therapy, it really can help you. So how the cures, are, are they similar to other cures for other compulsive behavior? I don't know because I don't know what people do for other behaviors. Mm -hmm. For me, I just came up with a few practices. And oddly enough, I I was seeing a shrink and she was really good. And she had one line she kept saying to me, mostly in the context of my marriage, which is, you can always say nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know that. No, see, no, no, no. Like, you can always say nothing. And finally I realized like, oh yeah, like basically you don't, even if someone asks you a direct question, you really don't have to ever say anything. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not going to do that. But that caused me to come up with a rule <laughs> that I called it when possible, say nothing, which <laughs> is a little extreme, but I, I, I don't do these also for 24 seven every day, but I'll pick one and say, this is my workout today. Okay. This is what I'm going to do today. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like going to the gym. You don't go for 16 hours a day and I'll do that. I'll say, I'm going to go do errands and I'm going to, um, when possible, say nothing. Like say, hey, say hello. 
you know, but I don't, my, I don't know if you have this problem. My problem is, okay, you're, you're, you're at the store and you go to the checkout counter and here's your stuff. And they go, okay, they ring you up, just tap your card, right? You really can do that, but you're not being rude, but you can do that really saying very little, being polite. But my thing is that trip over the edge where I go, so how's it going today? Really busy in here, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And they go, oh yeah, blah, blah. And I go, well, how long you been working here? Woof, off we go. Right. And, and I realized, you know, I used to think, oh, well, people like it. I'm being personable. But my kids are saying, no, dad, they're, they got to wait on the next person. They just right. want you to get out. Like wait. My wife says, I did this to every waiter and waitress we've ever had. Yeah. I get their life story. So it is hard. It is hard. It's not always a clear line. There are clearly examples where you overtalk, but then you get rewarded for it in certain situations. Yeah. You got the clear signal of Dan, get out of the house at least for a little while. And so thankfully that spurred you to research and talk to the people who really are looking at this in uh, a, a serious scientific way. So who are some of the top researchers you found and what insights did they give about talkaholism? I will tell you, the most amazing guy I met wasn't a talkaholic researcher, but I found this guy named Matthias Mell, M-E-H-L, at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he's a German guy who came here to go to grad school at UT Austin and was fascinated. He told me even when he was a kid as an undergraduate, he read about this guy named Pennebaker at UT Austin who was studying connections between speech and health. And I think he was dealing with PTSD. And so Matthias as a kid just was like, this is amazing. And applied to get into this guy's lab and went. Yeah. And so he spent the past 20 years studying this. And they came up with a device that's a little recorder and it has a timer that you carry it with you for three days and it turns itself on and off and you don't know when it is. It's random. And it just collects whatever you're saying and then extrapolates from that. Say how many words you speak in a day, how talkative are you? His first thing was, let's figure out who speaks more, men or women. Uh -huh. And that was a subject of big debate at the time and found out that they're both the same, which bummed out all these guys who wanted to believe that women were the talkers, you know, and it got it, like seriously, very controversial. He was taken aback. He said, I still have the, the voicemails that people sent me because they're hilarious, but like really angry guys, you know? Uh, so then he thought, well, if we can track how many words, what if we can track what kind of words, like what kind of conversations you're having. And so he did this research and found that people who have good conversations, meaning substantive, authentic conversations, like the one we're having now, as opposed to small talk and chit chat about mm -hmm. the weather, good conversation people are actually happier. You can map that to happiness. Then he said, well, let's map it to something else. And they mapped it to health and found that good conversations produce a healthier immune system. His great line is, you know, take two conversations and call me in the morning. Yes. And that anecdote made me think of an analogy. Communication is nutrition. Talk is calories. Mm -hmm. Because we all need nutrition and calories are part of nutrition, but there's such a thing as empty calories. There's such a thing as what so many of us know about taking in too many calories. So it's a component of it, but you could do it poorly or you could do it excessively and then you're actually getting in the way of nutrition slash communication even though it you think maybe that it is a building block of communication or of nutrition that you're engaged in you're really thwarting the overall process yeah that's an amazing analogy i wish i had that <laughs> when i wrote the book because it's exactly it it's empty calories right and it's junk food 
and there's junk talk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Matthias's point about small talk is that it's not bad. Like, small talk often is how you get a conversation going. Right. Right. Hey, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so you need a little of that. So it's not that small talk in and of itself is bad. It's that you really need to have more good conversations. And there's an art to doing that. And oddly enough, the art to doing that often means talking less spending more of your time asking questions and really listening. Yeah. One of his great anecdotes examples to me was he had a neighbor and he knew the neighbor had had cancer surgery and they were out, he was out for a walk with his dog and he ran into the neighbor and he said, it's the difference between saying, Hey, how are you? And saying, Hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And then really listening. Yeah. Like meeting authentically in that space. So yeah, exactly right. That's a great meal. Yeah. So those are high value calories. Right. And sometimes uh, the the small talk to begin with, it's like an appetizer. And maybe appetizers aren't the yeah. most nutritious, but they literally prompt, uh, you know, excite the taste buds and an amuse bouche of conversation. <laughs> it's the free bread. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's how they, but then again, that's how they get you. So there are some practical rules here. One is on a date. One of the professors you talk about talks about the 60-40 rule. Right. And this is Michael Beatty. Yes. He's the same guy who figured out the cause of talkaholism. So the 60-40 rule is the idea that on a date, you should be speaking between 40 and 60% of the time. So the art of it is to find a balance to get both people talking if, if you want to have a second date. Yeah. Then there was another rule that was much more specific than the 60-40 rule. There was the 7-38-55 rule. To what do those numbers refer? Those numbers refer to how information is conveyed, that when you speak to someone, only 7% of your meaning comes through with the actual words. 38%, I think, are the, how you say it, and the 55 are body language mm -hmm. uh, rather than by the words you say. And this is why, and this is another major theme of the book, social media and virtually represented, virtually represented communication it often thwarts true intent and deeper communication. Yeah. So my last thing I want to ask is, uh, in preparation for this interview, and often I research the guest and hear other interviews they've done, and I came across one that you recorded during the pandemic, and your comportment was slightly different than on this interview, and it was good. It was, you gave big, as we say in the interviewing business, and you talked about what was going on in your life during the pandemic. But during this interview, I have noticed that you asked me some questions and you said a couple times, that's interesting. And you followed up. And my question is, was this due to the training you've undertaken for the book? Was this um, somewhat of who you are now or a strategy for how you're going to do interviews for a book called Shut the Fuck Up? Tell me. Um Someone else has mentioned the same thing to me, and no, it's it's I've changed. It's it's um, the book really is a story about personal change, and it's not you know it's not I'm not making this up. It's not BS that this can change your life. It's really really changed me. And yes, I have to be active about it. I have to think before we get on this call. Okay, listen, ask questions, keep your voice down. I, I do it consciously, but I do this all the time now. Yeah, and when people like you tell me that. It makes me feel so good because I feel like, oh, it worked. My wife says the same thing. Like, we're back together now. And she said, I like the new you better than the old you. So, oh, wow. How's that for an endorsement of the book, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World, Dan Lyons, 
is the author, the newly taciturn and reflective <laughs> Dan Lyons. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. In the beginning of this year, the giant drugstore chains Walgreens and CVS made an announcement that was cheered by pro-choice activists. Here was some of the LA Times coverage, quote, Walgreens and CVS Health plan to seek U.S. certification to dispense the abortion pill, moves that could dramatically widen access to thousands of pharmacies in the parts of the country where abortion remains legal. Walgreens said it's, quote, working through the registration, necessary training of our pharmacists, as well as evaluating our pharmacy network in terms of where we normally dispense products that have an extra FDA requirement and will dispense these consistent with federal and state laws. Wow. Days earlier, the Biden administration had changed FDA requirements, allowing pharmacies to dispense the drug. And right after that, as you heard, Walgreens was vowing that they, quote, will dispense these consistent with federal and state laws. Cut to yesterday, when Gavin Newsom, governor of the country's largest state, had this to say to Walgreens. California is officially done with Walgreens, more specifically done doing business with them. Governor Newsom said today the state won't do any more business with Walgreens because the company is refusing to sell a specific abortion pill in about 20 states. 20 states that were not California, by the way. So why the change in attitude towards the state's second biggest pharmacy? Remember in January when Walgreens said they will dispense these consistent with federal and state laws? Well, now in March, (laughs) here's what they're saying. They're saying they're going to dispense these drugs consistent with federal and state laws. Wait, isn't that the same thing? No, it was a state law of Newsom's own state, which is to say a law he approved of allowing the dispensing of mifepristone. But now Walgreens, once more adhering to the same principle of following laws, won't dispense mifepristone in states where it's against the law or where the attorney general of that state says the company could face prosecution. Now, you may have heard coverage saying that's 20 states. It's actually 21. It includes Kansas, which sent Walgreens its own letter, in addition to the letter co-signed by the 20 other state AGs. You may also hear that some of those states are states where abortion is legal. That's true, but in two of the four states, four states where abortion is legal, where the AGs are saying you can still face prosecution, two of them do have rules that say you can't distribute these abortion pills outside a doctor's office. We're still waiting to hear what Alaska and Iowa say. It's also important to note that the confrontational stance of Newsom saying, we're done, seems to be mostly substanceless. The San Francisco Chronicle's Joe Garofoli looked into what businesses the state of California actually does business with. Couldn't find any. Quote, there are no contract with Walgreens for COVID-19 services. The California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, quote, does not contract with Walgreens, said a spokesman. And the California State Teachers Retirement System, or CalSTRS, quote, doesn't have a contract with Walgreens, according to its spokesman. The LA Times adds... Newsom's aide said his administration did not have any details on what cutting ties would entail and is only now reviewing all relationships between Walgreens and the state. Adding, Newsom has a tendency to seize on hot-button political issues and make attention-grabbing announcements before he is determined how the state will carry out his plan. 
Still, Newsom is basking in the national attention he's getting for his dramatic declaration. This all ends now. Um, Governor, it doesn't even seem to have started. This all doesn't start in the first place now. Every pro-choice Democrat was certainly bothered by the Walgreens decision. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker got only local attention for reaching out to Walgreens, an Illinois-based company, and expressing his concerns. Chicago's ABC7 had this quote from another high-ranking state official who actually understands the law. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul said today, or yesterday rather, he spoke with Walgreens chief legal officer saying, quote, I was assured that where Walgreens can legally and operationally dispense mifepristone, its pharmacies will continue to do so. Federally, the Washington Post quotes a former state attorney general and current U.S. senator, quote, Walgreens has to reverse its position, says Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal, quote, what they've done is absolutely unconscionable, succumbing to threats and bullying from attorneys general who have no legal basis for what they're doing. Blumenthal said Democrats should consider hearings if other big pharmacies such as CVS and Rite Aid, which haven't said how they'll proceed, follow Walgreens' lead. The Post continues the hearings would call the chief executives of these companies to explain why they have capitulated and caved to these hard-right ideologues. I would say because the hard-right ideologues are the attorneys general of those states. Blumenthal is a lawmaker. He could have made a law legalizing abortion everywhere. But no, he actually, he couldn't make that law because Republicans, who exist in America and the Senate, blocked him. Just as legislators in the states in question blocked the pro-choice factions within from enacting Blumenthal's preferred law. And my preferred law, too. But once laws are enacted, it should be a position of the U.S. Senate that those laws be followed. You could attempt to browbeat a private company into ignoring state law, but that only seems an attractive option because you can't achieve what actually is in your remit to pass a controlling better law. If you want to know about the real worrisome actor here, it's not an Illinois-based drugstore that doesn't do business with California. There's an imminent ruling in a Texas court by a federal judge which could undo the federal government's ability to allow the distribution of these medications anywhere. Hey, why a Texas judge? Kaiser Health News correspondent Sarah Varney explains. By filing its lawsuit in Amarillo, the Alliance Defending Freedom was almost guaranteed to draw Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, a Trump appointee who worked in the conservative Christian legal movement. But in other Texas legal filings yesterday, five women sued in state court after being denied access to abortions, even though they and their physicians describe those abortions as medically necessary. Texas supposedly has exceptions for the health of the mother. And those fights, these Texas court fights, these are the fights that will contract or expand reproductive rights in America. Newsom's are the tweets that will expand the stature of one and possibly only one Californian. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She likes how much I talk. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. and thanks for listening. The dispensing of Mephisperone. 
I knew I would. I knew I would fuck this up. Why'd I even try it? Why'd I even try it? I put all this time. Mephis. Mephipristone. Mephipristone. <sighs> okay. Allowing the dispensing of Mephis. Mephipristone. Mephipristone. 